If you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of something very big. You are part of something with cosmic importance. As people mature, we grow increasingly aware of how small we are. We realize that our personal stories are little stories. With the passage of time, we see more and more clearly that we're not very special and we're not all that gifted. When we die, there will be, we trust, a few people that are brokenhearted. But the world is going to go right on. And it's going to hardly notice that we're gone. Perhaps this is one of the subconscious reasons that so many investigate their ancestry toward the end of their lives. Perhaps it's this growing sense of smallness, even of rootlessness, that entices people to tether historically to something bigger than just self, just to small me. But we who have been united by faith to Jesus Christ are eternally linked to something that is huge. In our identity, we need to come around and grasp that and understand that. We are, first of all, participants in God's eternal plan of salvation. Let that sink in. I am a participant in His eternal plan to save a people for His name. And with that, linked to that, we are part of the ancient lineage of God's people. There is something deep. There is something lasting. There is something rooted and historical that distinguishes us from the orphan souls that shuffle about in spiritual blindness and self-worship on this planet every day. They see nothing bigger than the small self. And maybe it's an extended family. And maybe they begin to try to see some importance in who they are, but really they just shuffle around as orphan souls in smallness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to persuade you today in light of Romans chapter 4 that you are someone special. I don't mean at all what our world means by that phrase. Some of you had thought I'd lost my marbles there for a moment. I don't mean that. That you yourself, you as a little twit on earth, that you're someone to be celebrated, that you're big and important. No, not at all. I mean that you, in all of your puniness and innate insignificance, are a member of of God's eternal family. You are a participant in His cosmic, historic plan of salvation. If you have tied into that, that is who you are by God's act of goodness to you and to me. Specifically, as we work that out in light of Romans chapter 4 this morning, There is a family identity. There is an identity that we have with Abram, with Abraham. There is a salvation history component that we are people of faith. 
So let's look again to the book of Romans and consider these aspects and how important they are to our very identity. First of all, there's a natural standing before God. We are less than nothing. When we say that we are someone special, let's start here where we must. We are less than nothing. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But there is good news, 321. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets certainly bear witness to it, but the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory for which God created them and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The work that Jesus does provides the redemption that we cannot achieve on our own through our own goodness. Paul's thesis then here in chapter 3, we might point to verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from my obedience to God, I am declared righteous in His presence by faith. As we come then to chapter 4, we ask the question, does this apply to Jews as God's chosen people and only to them? Must we be Jews to fully participate in this grand story of redemption? Verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. So we are saved by faith, not by works. And God saves all people who come to Him by faith. Paul is going to have to do, in his context, a lot of work on this. For anybody to buy it that's reading it from a Jewish standpoint. From a standpoint where they are soaked in the Old Testament Scriptures. And in dealing with this issue, he draws so much light on who we are in Christ. Who we are as Gentiles here in Him. So we come to chapter 4. We notice first that we as godly sinners are justified by faith, not by works. We as godly sinners are justified by faith, not by works. I'm turning this thought in verses 1 through 8 to focus upon uh, we who are here, who are gathered in this place, who understand who we are as Gentiles. We as ungodly sinners are justified by faith, not by works. Now, Paul will work this out through several subpoints, but first making this point that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Chapter 4, verse 1. So he's supporting this thesis in verse 28 that we are justified by faith apart from works, and he's going to work into it the inclusion that the Gentiles have in this scheme of redemption. 
First, he establishes this point that Abraham was justified by faith. Supporting it from Scripture, he says, verse 1 of chapter 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, who is Paul addressing here? When he calls Abraham our forefather according to the flesh, there may be more here than meets the eye. Paul will declare that Abraham is the father of Gentile believers later in the text, but formally he continues to converse in a sense directly with the Jews, and that's where he has been. Verse 9 of chapter 3, what then, are we Jews any better off? Or is God, verse 29, the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Then coming here, what then shall we say is gained by Abraham our forefather? He's speaking here directly to the Jews. But formally continuing on, he says, verse 2 then, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. A lot of people that believed Abraham was justified by works. So Paul says if that's the case, then he has something to boast about. Now, don't think boast in the worst sense of the word, but he has something to glory in. He's done a good thing if he is justified by works, as many of you would say. There was no one that the Jews revered more as a man of faithful obedience to God than Abraham. His tomb at this very time was a sacred site, a place where it almost verged on idolatry for some Jews. The rabbis claimed that Abraham was sinless, that he earned a righteous standing before God by his obedience. So it's clear that what Paul's saying is the exact opposite. So the Jews would point to Abraham and say, here is one who obeyed God and was justified because he obeyed God. Paul says, let's think about that. Let's go right to Abraham himself. If he was justified by works, then we can glory in Abraham just like you do. But then he throws in this phrase at the end of verse 2. It's a little confusing, but you see it there. But not before God. I think that's a way of saying it's not how God sees it. Not in God's sight. We could glory in Abraham if he's justified by obeying God, but that's not going to work in God's sight. Paul's Jewish opponents believed Abraham was justified by his good deeds. God did not. In fact, when you think about it, God could never be in someone's debt and remain God. Salvation, logically, has to be by grace alone. Or God is made a debtor to us in our righteousness. It's not the case. And this is what Scripture, in fact, itself declares with respect to Abraham. So any who are dismissing Paul here and saying, you're not thinking about this right. We do good deeds and God is pleased with it. And he saves us because of those good deeds. He says, no, that's not the case, even with Abraham. I mean, he's exhibit one for obedience. In social goodness and kindness, he's the Mother Teresa, right? That was often referred to in that way, in that context. This is Abraham, the man of faith. No, look at the Scriptures, verse 3. What 
does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. How did he gain a right standing with God? He heard God's word and he said, I put my confidence in that. I put my confidence in what God has said. What did Abraham specifically believe? You remember, as we read it earlier, he's there in the promised land. He has no son, no offspring that would be his heritage. He has a wife who is past childbearing age and never bore a child. She's incapable of having a child. This is the situation that he's in. I'm in this land. I've listened to the call of God. I've followed him here, but I have no son, and I have a wife who cannot bear a son for me. And God, in a sense, puts his arm around Abraham, and he points to the stars of the sky, and he says, can you count them? No. In the same way, I will give you through your body a countless number of offspring. That is my promise to you. Now when God is making that promise, He's making a much grander promise than Abraham can get his head around at this point. He doesn't really fully comprehend what that means. But he knows that through his offspring, chapter 12 earlier, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he now knows God's promise that this offspring will be so great You'll not be able to count it. He's looking at his wife. He's looking at no children. And what he says in that moment is, I will believe the word of the Lord. I'm going to put my faith and my confidence in what God has said because he's trustworthy. All evidence to the contrary What God says is true, and He is trustworthy. Now, I don't mean by all evidence to the contrary that faith is itself irrational, that we throw ourselves in faith upon nothing. Not saying that. God has proven Himself trustworthy. He is trustworthy, but when we can't logically put it together and He says this, Even then, we must trust his word. That is faith, and it is counted to Abraham as righteousness. He has a righteous right standing with God because he's believed what God has said. This is the nature of saving faith. God asks nothing from Abraham. If you do this, I'll do this. He just says, this is my promise. Abraham earns nothing from God. You know, Abraham, you've been doing a really good job and I'm going to reward you. Not at all. God spoke, Abraham believed. And Abraham received a right standing with God by throwing himself in dependence upon the Lord's promise. So let's go back to an illustration we've picked up before. We'll pick it up again here. But you're on this hiking trip and you fall into that deep crevice in the rock. And as you fall 100 feet, you break a leg, you're in really bad shape, you're pretty amazed that you're alive, but you look around and realize that you are entombed 
in this crevice. You can't touch the sides, two sides at once. The rock is 100 feet above your head and it is like ice. It's so smooth. You cannot get out of this hole in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing available to you to be rescued. You're done. But as the day passes in your pain, and as you realize death is getting nearer and nearer with each breath, you hear a call from way up above. And there is someone here to rescue you. And a rope is dropped down with a harness and the message is sent, get in the harness and I'll pull you up to safety. You're going to have to make a decision here, do I trust this? Do I put my confidence in this rope? Do I put my confidence in this person who's rescuing me? Or at least attempting to. You put on the heart, you get in the harness, you trust the rope, and you are inch by inch pulled all the way to the top, and you're rescued. Can you imagine getting up there, and there's a whole crowd of people surrounded watching your rescue, and you get up to the top and you say, Did you see my faith? Did you see that? I was rescued because I put my trust in the rope and the harness. Isn't that impressive? Everybody's going to look at you like, man, you hit the ground really hard down there, didn't you? What is wrong with you? I mean, yeah, you put your faith and your hope in the rope and the harness, but that didn't rescue you. Of course, if you stay at the bottom and you won't trust in the rescuer to pull you up, of course you'll die, you'll perish. But it's not your faith that saved you, it's the person that rescued you. It's those who pulled the rope up, it's those who came to your rescue. That's how we should see Abraham. Not he did a wonderful thing to trust God, and by trusting God, God rewarded him. It's God who is acting here to save Abraham, and that's what faith is. As one commentator says, his faith was not a work. It was not a virtue. It was not an expression of heroic will. It was a resignation in weakness to the sovereign word of the Lord. You see that? You're down here. I'm going to listen to this word that this is my way out, that this is my rescue, and I'm going to trust this. It's not a heroic deed on my part. It's just saying, I'm in trouble here. I must throw myself in absolute dependence on Christ. Abraham's rescue depended entirely then on God's determination and on God's intervention from above. There was no merit in the faith itself. And we, as we think of this and we begin to understand it, we have a part in this redemptive plan. Where Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, and not by his faith by itself, God, secondly, likewise, counts righteous, ungodly sinners who trust in him. He counts ungodly sinners who trust in him as righteous. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. A sort of illustration here. It makes clear sense. If we are hired to do a job 
we earn an agreed-upon wage. I give my time away, I give my energy away, I give my skill away to complete this job, and someone then owes me my wages in return. That's how that works. But verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. Put your eye on that phrase and drink it in. I say this respectfully, reverently, but that's weird. That is really odd thinking. God justifies the ungodly. Let's think of it for a moment. It'll take several chapters to continue explaining what he's brought out in chapter 3, 21 to 24. But this verse runs counter to the fundamental premise of every world religion except Christianity. The very concept grates against people's natural thinking. We don't like when someone in a place of judgment rewards a person who is unfair or ungodly. We don't like the unjust judge. We don't like the crooked politician who justifies the guilty. We don't even like the referee who misses a call. That's not fair. That wasn't right. That was a bad judgment. We get uptight about such things. And then we read this phrase that God justifies the ungodly. It does not mean, of course, that God overlooks sin. But what it means is that He creates a new status for the sinner purchased by Christ's death in the place of sinners. How can God justify people who are ungodly? Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. A new status is created, not on the basis of his sin, but on the basis of his faith. So if we go back to the crevice, the reason we fell down there is because we broke the law of the rescuer. But when we put our trust and our confidence in Him, He pulls us back to the surface and He restores fellowship with us as we come to a place of recognizing that we were wrong. So the example of Abraham supports all of this. The man that many rabbis saw as sinless was really saved by faith. Now, no rabbi thought of King David as sinless. Paul continues his support, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David too supports us. We have one who you think was not a sinner, he was. But we have one here who we all know is a sinner and it's the same way of salvation. Abraham is justified by his faith and so with David. David also speaks of this blessedness. David did not earn God's forgiveness. That is really clear. He committed adultery and then murdered the woman's husband to cover up his crime. But in this state of ungodliness, David came to know the blessedness of God's gracious choice not to hold David's sin against him, but 
to forgive him. Verse 7, Psalm 32. Blessed, writes David, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How do you filter that? Let me ask you just personally in your own mind, are you a sinner? Are you fully aware and humbled by the realization that you have broken the law of God? God calls us not to lie. He calls us not to lust, to be bitter, to be proud. He calls us to love others as we love ourselves and to love God with all of our heart. He has created us for this. This is the glory for which we were created, but we fall short of it. Do you have that sense? I know I've broken the law of God. Are you then aware that God is holy and is just to judge you as a lawbreaker? That's where it gets nervous for a lot of people. I'll admit I've done some things wrong, but God is just to judge me? Do we realize that the wages of sin is death? Do you know that this is what is deserved? If not, you need to continue to think. You need to pray and ask God, does He have the right to judge your sin? He does. He's holy. He cannot endure sin He must judge it because he's just. But do you know then, if you say, I know I'm a sinner, I know that God is just in judging sin, do you know the blessedness of having your sins forgiven by Christ? Do you know that experience? Does that bring joy to you? Do you well up inside to say, yes, I know that. I know what that is to have a full sense of my guilt and also a sense of the forgiveness of Christ. If so, if you understand, you know what it means to be forgiven, then you are participating in something very special. There is a heritage of participation in God's plan of salvation, and it is no small thing. Abraham believed God and was justified by his faith. David appealed to God in repentance, and his sins were not counted against him. This is something that goes against what all religions teach outside of genuine Christianity, that God justifies the ungodly. No, God justifies the people who deserve it. They earn it. Do you know this sense? No. God justifies wicked people who turn to repentance and trust Him for forgiveness. If so, we are part of something big. If you've been rescued from sin by Christ, then grasp this. You are a participant of the greatest rescue of souls in history. That's who you are in Christ. This isn't a source of pride. We don't get pulled up from the pit on the rope and get up on the top and boast to people about how wonderful our faith is. We get down on our knees and we worship Jesus. And we say, thank you. I've been redeemed by your grace. That's who we are in Christ. Sin's power has been broken. You have been forgiven your sins and all this by simply throwing our hope and trust in him. 
at verse 9, we find a second indication of our privilege as Gentile believers. We as Gentile outcasts are children of Abraham by faith, not by circumcision. Abraham was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised, Paul argues, beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? This blessing of being forgiven, having this sense that my sins have been washed clean by Christ. Is it just for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That is, for the Jews or also for the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. I've I've made this point, he says, verse 9. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now that's Abraham. How then, verse 10, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? You know your Old Testament. Was it before or after? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a physical sign that one was a Jew, a member of the people of God chosen as his holy nation. The uncircumcised are Gentiles outside of God's covenant promises to Israel. But what we read earlier in Genesis 15, Abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness. That came before the sign of circumcision was given that he was part of the covenant. Paul makes a very crucial argument here on the connection between the timing of these events. I've established the point, he says in verse 9, but I want to ask you, when did this happen? Circumcision came after Abraham was justified. I tell you, if you're a regular Jewish rabbi reading this in that day, you are sweating bullets. I mean, this is an argument that just isn't presented in the rabbinic writings. And it's right on track with what Scripture has said. This is stunning. Verse 11, Abram received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a sign... That is, it served as a seal authenticating Abraham's covenant relationship with God. The sign could only speak to what was already true. Abraham was counted righteous. Again, the Jews of Paul's day believed that their circumcision was a ticket to heaven. Many would indicate that in their writings. But Paul presents this shocking truth that Abraham was counted before Righteous, he was counted righteous before he was circumcised. And if that's not shocking enough, Paul continues at the second half of verse 11. The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. The purpose. Paul is going so far as to say God designed it this way. He designed it this way so that it would be clear to all who come after in time that no one is saved by a religious rite. Abraham was not saved by circumcision. He was counted righteous before circumcision. 
And this means that born-again Gentiles are part of something huge. We are the children of Abraham in a way that is every bit as significant as being a physical descendant of Abraham. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. God orchestrated this in salvation history to link us Gentiles with Abraham being justified by faith. Now that's not leaving the Jews out particularly, well, especially, no, I guess say this differently. That's not leaving the Jews out, not one of them who has trusted Christ. That's verse 12. And to make him also the father of the circumcised, of the Jew, who are not merely circumcised, that is just the physical identification with Israel, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So there's two people in view in verses 11 and 12. There's the believing Gentile and there's the believing Jew. All are saved the same way. The connection to Abraham comes in Genesis 15, not Genesis 17 in circumcision. It's faith in what God has said. So this stresses again, in light of Genesis, that the Jews are actually behind the Gentiles in the timing of salvation history. That's not something the Jewish rabbis cared to hear. It's not a concept they had really put together. But the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, lays out this connection that actually Abraham was saved as a Gentile. He was saved before he was circumcised. And really, and this gets into our own little hat and world here, but really that sign coming after his justification I think is a much better pattern for baptism than putting it with children. I realize that children were circumcised and we disconnect circumcision and baptism in our understanding theologically, but it's interesting here, isn't it? He was saved by faith and then the sign of circumcision to indicate that under that covenant. So the Gentiles have an actually earlier connection to Abraham as the exemplar of faith. Well, so what? It's really interesting if you just get into the conversation of it and just realize how Paul is using Scripture here. There's a world of instruction of just how to appeal to Scripture. The significance of how the Bible is put together and what that reveals and this interaction between who Abraham was. Jews saw him quite differently. He's our father, not the father of the Gentiles. Paul is saying, look at what the Scripture says. He's very clearly the father of the Gentiles. Before, he was connected to you through circumcision. I mean, that's all intriguing and interesting. It's interesting how he's just marshalling that argument from Scripture. That I come back to, so what for us? I mean, is it just a 
intramural debate, and it's kind of interesting to see how it works out. It is so much more. Our very self-identity is found here. It is not, verses 9 through 12, about who we are. It's not about religious right. And it's not about what we do, verses 1 through 8. It's not about the good deeds that we perform. There is a message about salvation there that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And there is a connectedness that has nothing to do with who we are in ourselves, but who we are in Christ Everything is about who Christ is and what He has accomplished for us. He is the rescuer who drops the rope into the pit of our sin and says, harness up and trust Me. I will pull you up. We're in that pit due to our rebellion against Him. But putting our faith in what God has revealed and trusting Christ to rescue us from our sin, we become participants in this grand scheme of redemption. That's who we are. In Christ. And we are by new birth Abraham's spiritual offspring. There is such an immense identity crisis that Satan imposes upon people who are outside of Christ. There is this aching sense that I am an orphan soul without Jesus. There's this aching sense that I am puny and insignificant and life really has no meaning outside of the little things I put together that keep imploding. But here, follower of Christ, here we say that you, here we say that we as a church are among those ungodly who are justified by faith. We're part of that salvation program. We tap into it. It is our story. Secondly, we are children of Abraham, counted righteous with him. That's my identity. And I mean, have fun chasing your family tree. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing to do. Trace it to Abraham in faith. Now we've got something big. I'm a child of Abraham. He's my forefather because I've come like him to trust the word of the Lord and to be justified on that basis. In Christ, we are special people. We are his people. We're not special people because of what is innate in us. We are special people because he has chosen us for this rescue. This conversation happening in this room today is outside the pale everything this world thinks and here in this place we have this message we are the evidence of God's saving mercy this is us by his grace alone and the response then to this will radically change every inch of our lives There should be a response of continuing trust that changes the way that I view myself, that changes the way that I view the church. What is the church? We are this gathering of those that are part of this project. We are the gathering of those who are the children of Abraham through faith. We gather to lift up prayers and to lift up worship in song and to seek God's word together as those people. 
It changes how we look at singleness and widowhood. It changes that our identity is not just in those relationships that are all severed eventually by death, but is in Christ and in this project that we are part of. It changes how we look at age and how we look at family life. It changes how we wash the dishes. I am a daughter of Abraham. I am a son of Abraham through faith. It's who we are and who we represent. It changes the way that we obey the Lord as we respond to who He has made us. And certainly it puts a song within our heart, a song of joy and thanksgiving where we resonate with sinner King David and say with a heightened sense of joy and gladness, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. We say with all of our heart, blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That experience, that knowledge of how we get to that place and who we are as we come to trust that message, that's who we are. That's this church. That's you in Christ. That's our heritage and our identity forever and ever. And nothing can take that away. Let's bow. Lord, we struggle to find words to thank you. We struggle to really grasp who we are. One thing we know, it's not because of what we've done or who we are in ourselves, but it's because of Christ. And I pray that this church would as long as you give it life and purpose and function, that this church would stand for Jesus Christ. That we would identify with Him. That we would rejoice to be part of this salvation plan. I pray for those who are outside that plan right now because they're trusting in their own works. They're striving to be good people in their own strength. I pray that you give, bring them to that place of abject spiritual poverty where they find themselves in a place of brokenness and weakness as we have sung. That they would come to you and realize that the rescue is from outside. That they trust your word and put their hope in your trustworthiness. For those of us who know you, May our songs be infused with a joy that this world does not understand. And may our very identity and everything that we carry out in this life always be rooted and driven by this identification with Christ. And as we find it fleshed out more fully in the chapters to come, as you give us that opportunity, we pray that you will deepen us in this sense of identity that utterly humbles us and utterly thrills us as we see who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Work to this end to our sanctification, we pray in his name.